today on a very special episode of the Enneagram Journey. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. Big fat juicy ones, long thin slimy ones, itsy bitsy fuzzy wuzzy worms. Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Up, I ball the entire time. I cannot watch Pixar. Michael, yes. drop this one on board. Why? I found twins. Oh my god, twins. I'm sorry, you understand. Nice to meet you. Aren't they magnificent? They're men, Dwight. I love finding a good set of twins. Something is wrong with you. I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley is a caring nurturer, a member of several 12-step programs, but not a licensed therapist. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hi, my name is Joel. We're good enough, one of us is smart enough, and doggone it, people like Suzanne Stabile. We've got a Q&A episode today on the Anagram Journey podcast that was recorded with a small live audience on the table. That's L-Team's online subscription service, if you aren't familiar with it. Some of the topics today is typing between one and four, question about chaining from a nine, tips for couples who share the same repressed center, and what is Suzanne's favorite Thomas Merton book? And of course, so much more. Before we get to the episode, it's plug time. We are so close to being in Kansas City that we can almost taste the barbecue. Suzanne will be at Resurrection UMC June 23rd and 24th. Come and join us. Relationships in the Anagram with the Godmother, Friday night and Saturday. You'll find the link on the LTM website and in the show notes. But if you want to explore the Resurrection United Methodist Church website, head on over to resurrection.church. Tickets for this event are only $30, and there's an optional dinner on Friday night. So many people reach out asking for help finding an Anagram community. This is one of the best opportunities to do that. Explore the paths between us with the relationship guru, Anagram Godmother, and our friends at Resurrection UMC in Kansas City, June 23rd and 24th. Maybe you're saying to yourself, that weekend doesn't work for me and I can't get to Kansas City, but I really, really, really want to see some top shelf Anagram teaching and find some community, and most importantly, first weekend of August is in my wheelhouse. Well, we've got you covered. The 2023 Anagram Boot Camp in Dallas, Texas is August 3rd through the 5th. Naming and navigating your experiences with Suzanne Stabile and LTM utilizing Anagram wisdom. One of the cool things is that people know the first weekend each August this event is happening, and so many people have built community through the connections that they've made at this event. In Dallas, August 3rd through the 5th, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com or find the link in the show notes. The 2023 Enneagram Boot Camp. 
If you can't be there in person, you can join us online and replay is available for all registrants through the end of the year. Two great opportunities for Anagram growth. Until we see you in Kansas City or in Dallas, we hope you're well and we hope that you enjoy today's Q&A episode. All right. Look say, at me. Look at me. So tall. I am taller. All right. Well, wh- why don't you check in with everybody first? Hey, everybody. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a gray day in Dallas. We had a really good weekend this weekend with our uh, Enneagram cohort. Um, the Reverend, as Joel calls him, and I are working on some things that we're going to do together. All good. We just did a really interesting uh, recorded a podcast with an eight and a one who are married. We'd never done that before. That was really good. Yeah, I thought so too. So, I mean, I was surprised by the eight one combo. The outcome of that was a surprise to me. I expected it to be more different. Yeah. I, I expected them to be more different. And they do, they've done a lot of work. Like they've got a therapist and they keep Sabbath and all that. But still, um, yeah. Eight, eight is strong, and one is definitely the fourth aggressive number. We got good mornings and good afternoons from Georgia, from Washington. I think that someone's in England. Yep, Karen in England. It's warm and sunny there. Shout out to Sue, Nicole, Parker, Lori, Everett, Lydia, Melissa. Hello. I think we're going to open up with Melissa's question that she submitted on Instagram. But yeah, hello everyone who's joining us. Anthony Williams, good to see you. So Sue says, I'm um, married to an eight and I'm a one. We've been together 36 years. So there you go. You'll like this podcast. They were, they were it was some. a great podcast. Yeah, it was. Well, let's jump into it then. And people, I'll be monitoring the chat. Okay. Uh, this will be a future, the audio of this will be a future podcast. And anything else I'm missing? The video will stay up, so if you have to duck out later and you're like, oh, man, I wanted to hear the thing, the video will be here on the table. That's the magic of it. And the audio will be on the podcast. So thank you for being here live. That is super important and helpful for us. Well, so. it's essential. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number one out of the shoot, and we've also got some audio questions that I'm going to try to play as well. But uh, what's the difference from when a seven moves to a one in stress and an eight in unhealthy eight space. When a seven moves to one in stress, they usually know it because they are doing things that they don't normally do. It's not part of their way of responding to life. That's a better way to say it. They respond to life differently than they normally do. And they don't look like eights in unhealthy space. Because you can't get that much observable aggression in a seven, no matter what move they make on the Enneagram. Eights in unhealthy space are not just controlling. We're all controlling sometimes. They are going to control their surroundings, which is a different energy. And they are... Angry, it's their default emotion, but they're just there. They're just angry, and everybody knows they're angry, and they turn space uh, into fear space, which creates anxiety. 
and it's obvious in observing a seven in one space that they are trying to make sure that they diminish the anxiety. You agree with all that? Yeah, the fact that you brought up the anger part. The seven to one space, we made this comment this past weekend. Uh, I think it was one that said, ones, first their anger is on themselves, then on everybody else. And for me, when I go to one space, it's the inverse of that, that my anger is at everyone else before I get to, to me. And they added a little bit more information. Uh, this question comes from Melissa's husband trying to convince her that she's an eight because of how controlling she can be. Well, I'm not going to get in that. But the, <laughs> the thing I would say about your anger, though, even though the inverse happens and you're anger, angry with everyone else, uh, you don't express all that at, toward everyone else, though. You go into problem-solving mode, and everybody knows you're angry, but you're not expressing anger. Yeah. Yeah, I, I try to bottle it up some. I'll keep looking at the chat for questions as well, but let's just see if well, the audio is. Well, let's just wait one minute. <laughs> just going to breeze on through. No, I want to I wanna talk about that for a minute because trying to bottle it up some, that sounds like, yeah, I'm trying to take care of people and just bottle it up some. And what's really happening is? Let me be clear. I wasn't trying to sell it as that. Okay, good. I good. was just saying bottle up because I don't want to fight with people. Right. Like there's no there's no... And you don't want to fight, and you want them to know you're angry. Yes. And then they need to figure it out. It's that. It's we that can thing. all figure it out on our own. Yeah. Uh huh. We yeah. don't need to talk about it. Just figure it out and don't do it again. Yeah. And yeah, and that's how I would also like to be treated. <laughs> <laughs> Minus the verbal processing. But. So I wonder how much of that is that. That's a genuine. Everybody's a seven thing, and how much of that is that you had a mother who verbally processed when she was angry and you vowed to never do it. I won't do this to my children. And I, now I do it to my children. My thing is like when I get to talking too much, especially I've had to work on this with Jace because of his ADD and what we're learning about that and how the more you talk, the less it's, it's helpful Yeah, in disciplining him and, um, Rearing him? Is that the term that people use? Uh, yes. Uh, so, Parenting. So, but my, my thing is like trying to get them to understand. Logic. And trying to get them to respond with, with the logic. Like, do you, can you give me, the, you know, with Jace, I've just come up with a thing now where he stared, he's done this since he was little. We're looking back on pictures and stuff now. You know, we've only been together like seven years, I guess now. But, you know, Jace is 10. So... You know, when he was two and a half, that's when I met him. Right. And from that age, he'd just stare at you. Wouldn't. Yep. Just, just stare at you. So he said, I'm a seven verbal processor. I think, I think it, I say it. I've been saying about the verbal processing. I think that a lot of people, verbal processors, we're verbally processing different things. So I, this is not, this might be wrong. What you, t- you teach that ones, twos, and sixes verbally processed to get to productive thinking. Like that's, that's right. the road you have to take. That's right. I know that at times I verbally process to get to feelings. Yep. What, to get to how I feel or to get to whatever. But I've got a, ver- I can't just, I can't internally get to the feelings. Yep. I do have to verbally process to get there. 
And I cannot get to thinking without verbally processing. And the the problem, though, is that ones, twos, and sixes are verbally processing about themselves. And other numbers are often verbally processing about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Is mistyping between one and four common? And what are some key distinctions? I don't understand. And I don't mean this to be patronizing or any of the ways it could be heard. One is the number on the Enneagram that has the deal breaker that is so easy to understand. And that is, if you have an inner critic who never gives you an girl, and you've had all your life and it's just telling you the things you get wrong, that you don't accomplish, that you do poorly, that you shouldn't have done, all of that. Fours don't have that. No other number has that. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not unhappy uh, with ones because they struggle with that. I'm not even frustrated with ones that they struggle with that. I'm anxious to understand that. Do you think that in society... So many people relate to oneness and one teaching because of all the negative self-reflection that we as a culture have. And the fact that everyone has, except for, or no, I've read this somewhere that not everybody does have an inner dialogue. Right. Uh, But most people, I think most people do have an inner dialogue of Mm -hmm. some sort. When I read that, that not everybody has an inner dialogue. Mm-hmm. That was mind blowing. I was like, "What?" I w- when I read it, I thought I want to be that number. So I love the inner dialogue. I, <laughs> Yours is very entertaining. Mind shaming. Works for me. But the thing I, I want to say about that is, if we talk about fours, you remember when y'all were younger, much younger, I guess, and there was this saying that went around for a while. Uh, he's he's just gonna go sit in the corner and eat worms. Or do you remember that? I'm having deja vu. Go on. No, I think that's a, and I think in my deja vu, I think that's a saying from when you were a kid. Oh, wow. Well, I wasn't a kid, but maybe from earlier in my life. Anyway, I, I'm sorry about all that wasted time, but what I would say is fours are not listening to a critic that is telling them they're bad and wrong and they don't get things right. They are in inner dialogue with a voice where they are talking about the fact that people don't get them and people don't understand them and people um, are not fair with them and they can't figure out how to do life to make it work. It's um, There's a mutuality that isn't like a parent-child thing, which is what ones get. Ones get authority and person who's not an authority talk. And fours are kind of like... Nobody's ever going to get me. Nobody understands me. I'm different from everybody else. I wish I could be more like everybody else, but then I lose my authenticity. And even Jace knows, we think he's a four. Even Jace knows that he wants to be authentic, even though he doesn't use that word and isn't ready to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about inner dialogue. Um, Once... It's about, it's you getting a whipping. Twos, it'll be about relationships. And you have a lot of inner dialogue that is imaginary conversation with people that you're mad at, that you want to say something to, but you're probably not going to. 
with people who take you for granted, those kinds of things. Three's inner dialogue is usually very brief, complimentary and supportive, and how to achieve the next goal. There's not a lot of, with three, sevens, and eights, there's not a, a lot of inner dialogue that has anything negative that you did or that you did wrong connected to it. Four, fives. And you, your inner dialogue is actually just thinking. You live in your head. And you think about things, and then you think about what other people might think about what you're thinking about, which is a completely different thing. Six is your inner dialogue has to do with worst-case scenario planning and what are we going to do if all of these things happen. And seven, eight, nine nine inner dialogue is generally uh, conflict-avoidant dialogue like I I could say this that I'm thinking about but then what would happen if I said that and how would I say it and then by the time they get through that it's too late to say it I want to go back to sixes and just add that sixes do a similar thing when they want to enter a conversation they say um, I think I have something to say I think everybody would say it's valuable I don't know if I want to say it. I don't want to include anything that's too personal. Maybe I should already know the answer. I think I'm going to say it. And then by the time they get to that, the conversation has moved on and they don't. I relate just a little bit as a as an introvert to your description of nines. Because I'll be somewhere and I'll hear someone talking. Mm-hmm. And I'll think, man, I'd, I've got this to contribute to this. But then I say to myself, and though that opens me up to like, a conversation and where are we going from there? And then all of a sudden now I can't just eat by myself and now they're talking to me. And so, so no. Yeah. And so I air on. So I'll do. All right, here we go. Hey, Joel and Suzanne. I have a question about chaining. I'm an Enneagram nine. And sometimes when you talk about chaining, I really relate, even though I'm not those numbers you say usually do that. The way I relate, though, is usually relationally when there's something going on, um, a conflict of some sort, I tend to recall all these other instances from the past that have to do with the present situation going on. And I'm curious if this is chaining or if this is being past-oriented, probably, and then also if this is spaces where I haven't been direct or haven't stood up for myself. Um, until now. So I was just curious sort of how you would describe the difference between what you described as chaining versus this type of behavior, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's a great question, and congratulations on all the things you already thought through to decide if it's one of those things because it's um, impressive. And so I don't like my answer because I want it to be one of the things that you thought about and tried to work with. And, and it's, it could be all of those things. But the most important thing it is, is that you go to six in stress. And when you think fragmentation and disconnection is on the horizon, it's very stressful. Even if you think it for a minute, even if it's somebody you don't know very well, it's like, you, you don't want to say, I ordered my steak 
well done and it's rare because you think about the things that that could cause that you don't want. It's like what Joel was talking about a minute ago, sort of about how he feels. And um, the, the, big, the biggest thing about nines, introvert, extrovert, doesn't matter. The biggest thing about nines is that you are maintaining a distance by what you will and will not contribute with doing or with saying that is comfortable for you because it feels like you have a little protective space in case your energy runs low and you don't have what you need to find some comfort. If, if we said any number on the Enneagram is looking for comfort, it would be nines. But they're looking for not physical comfort, but just comfort in the room comfort within themselves they just want to be comfortable got a question here from rachel in the chat i'm a nine married to a five do you have any tips or thoughts on couples who are repressed in the same center of intelligence (laughs) Uh, tips or what thoughts tips thoughts (laughs) well i got some thoughts i might have a tip or two it's very difficult with people who are doing repressed, who are in uh, intimate, deep relationship with one another to get stuff done. It's just very difficult. And so I think you have to be very intentional. One of the things that was in our previous podcast that I was so aware of is they talked a lot about the things they do intentionally. And in my head, I kept having a running list of things I need to be doing intentionally. And I, I think you're just going to have to work on I look at you all the time, yeah. don't I? I think you just have to work on the things that have to be done. And then you, you're you going to have to keep a list. And I don't know. It's almost like if you have a list somewhere in the kitchen where you pass it all the time of things that need to be done, and you each just take one. And I think you'll find that in those two numbers, you're more, you're better suited for some tasks than others. And if you get that done, then you'll be farther down the road. That orientation to time and doing repressed thing is tricky. And we've talked about this here on the table a lot. Orientation time is such an underrated aspect of relationships and and Enneagram work. That just getting the timing of things and lining up timing and understanding the other person's timing. You know, we've, we've talked about, or I've shared about how I've learned and Whitney and I have learned in our relationship and our learning. It's not easy that we can't have, I can't get the answers to the questions I have there on the spot. Right. And used to be, especially at a younger age, not in our relationship, but in any relationship, like that, I've won the, I won. I've asked these questions and you don't have the answers and yeah. yeah, therefore I'm justified, whatever. Right. And now it's, you know, she's pointing out like, I just, I can't answer it right now. Right. You're asking these questions that don't even address at all what I'm talking, upset about. Right. Or the issue that I'm coming from. And, but haven't given the timing of, she's got to come back because of repressed thinking because of all this stuff and I've got to, and I've 
and I've got to come back to the present moment yeah. and I've got to be okay with going back to the conversation. Um, yeah. That's the same way. You know, I, I want to get it done now and I want to get it handled, mm-hmm. whether it's positive or negative. And he has to think about it. And I, I don't, it's like, what is there to think about? This is what we need to do. Well, that was one of the big things that I took away from one of the many things that I learned during the pandemic, Billy talking about with Joey, how when they, before the pandemic, when they had a fight, he, you know, got to leave. That's right. And go to, go to work and prepare himself and like get his, get his answers ready, get his questions ready, get his. I'm getting madder at your dad by the second. Getting worked up. I'm, I'm sorry, dad. And, you know, during the pandemic when they were, you know, quarantined, if, you know, if he went to another room, Joey followed him to the Absolutely. other room. Absolutely. I followed dad to the <laughs> car. <laughs> and, and hearing, referencing the conversation that we just had with Sandra and Carl, hearing Sandra talk about the need for like some, yeah. the intensity and asking for him and her saying like, oh, come cuss at me some. Like, like let me it, have l- something. L- yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just, and they need the, they need time to <laughs> come yeah. back with that. First time I followed dad to the car. I was in my nightgown. Car was out front of the house that we lived in. It was a parsonage. And I followed him to the car, angry at him and wanting to finish the conversation. He just drove off. Yeah. Oh, I I am whipped up. I'm sorry, Dad. So sorry. But the thing I want to say about that is what's the motive for that? And for Dad, the motive is if I respond right now, it's going to not serve us well. And I asked him early on what that was about. And he said, you know, I'm not afraid of very much about myself. The one thing that he was afraid of that is inside of him 40 years ago was anger. And I bet the same is true for Whitney. Because she's a one and anger's just right there. I, I think the rest of us, when we get angry, we don't have any idea what it would feel like if we got angry before we decided to. Mm. Yeah, when you, when you talk about scratching the surface and it mm-hmm. just being there. Mm-hmm. And same with fear and shame for, for the others. Yeah, and Dad's orientation to time, at least in nines, is to the past. And so he can't get angry without it being in his past. So then it comes up the other, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, messy. All right, well, what, uh, so what then is the best way to initiate conflict with a one? Well, I think the best way is for you to do your own work inside about what you know about ones. And that is that they already think they're bad. They already have a critic that tells them that they're doing things wrong. And the reality is that if you initiate some kind of conversation that's conflictual with a one, it's going to have to do with the one, not you. And I think you have to keep in mind that you're agreeing with the critic when you do that. And so I think you have to think it through and get it down to fewer words and what you're really unhappy about and not all the things you've ever been unhappy about before. And no, and I've really worked on this over the years. With y'all as children, I didn't do well and I didn't do well with Dad. Not bringing up the past stuff that matches this stuff. That... That's a chaining thing that everybody does, but it's a gotcha. 
You you always do it, so you're going to do it again. I don't know why I expected you to not do it again because you did it that time, that time, that time, that time. Ones just can hardly breathe under that kind of. And remember, when you're talking to a one and you are, it, it could be conflictual, their critic is in the conversation. It's hard. And you have to have conflict with ones in order to have a healthy relationship. Hi, Suzanne and team. I'm an Enneagram 6, and I'm very aware of my habits of unproductive thinking. The the rumination, the worry, the anxiety, the rehearsing, um, as well as a orientation to authority, needing to um, have authority's approval before I can feel ready to move forward on something. um, I'm a phobic six. And I'm wondering if you have any... any advice um, or skills, tools to use that could help cultivate a self-directedness for a six? Is it even possible for sixes to be self-directed um, given these <laughs> common common things around sixes? Uh, I would love to hear any thoughts you have. Thank you so much for what you do. Bye. Um, you know what's happening today, Joel? I'm just so proud of everybody. <laughs> We now have created created conversation where people come on the table and say, I've already done this and this and this, so now what do I do? Mm -hmm. And that was the goal of the way we teach Enneagram. So I'm so proud of everybody and all the stuff. Self-directed six, that has to do with orientation of time because you're oriented to what's right in front of you. And so I'm... I'm with you. I'm not as, it's not as hard for me as it is for you because I don't have the self-doubt that you have. But I do the same thing, and that is we make a plan for ourselves for the afternoon, for the day, for the appointment, and then we don't stick to the plan because we let the other person who's in front of us or the activity or whatever's happening take over, and we give ourselves to what's happening outside of us rather than having the boundaries and the discipline to go ahead and do what we had planned and what needs to be done. When that happens, I'm going to come back to that, but when that happens, then the next thing that happens is you still have to get done the things you were going to get done that you got sidetracked about, and then you end up being tired. And the tireder you are, the less opportunity you have to be on top of things and be self-directed. So here's three things. Start start with this. Two things you have to do internally and one thing you have to do externally. First thing you have to do is have a mantra where you say, I trust myself. You can add to it if you want. I make good decisions. I am a successful human being. I trust myself. The second thing that you have to say to yourself, and it's um, it's really important, and it is self-affirmation about the fact that you matter. As much as anybody else, you matter. And that means your schedule matters, and that means what you have to get done matters, and that means you got to get it done because the people who matter the most to you are important. And if you don't, somehow like I'm sitting up taller when I'm talking about it if you don't somehow own the value that you have 
then you just give yourself away. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is so do I. (laughs) It's just I have to give myself different messages to say self-directed. And finally, I would say that in our world, if you are other-referenced, people think you're so nice. I hate that word, by the way. And you're kind. I don't hate that word. And you're generous and all the things. And the answer to that, often I'm sure about you, is that you are. The question that I'm beginning to work with over and over, and it's really getting me. And so I'm asking you to join me because I think it'll help you. Is when I start to lose my way and I'm not doing what I had planned to do for the day and I'm giving myself to somebody or something else, I've started to ask myself in my head, okay, this feels good. What am I saying no to to do this? And that's become a very big question for me. And I think it's a very big question for ones and twos and sixes. I want to provide a song. This is on the fly. I didn't know that you were going to answer with all that stuff about, you know, step one and step two. Yeah. Get ready. Affirmations are positive statements that help us to challenge and overcome when you're not feeling good and have negative thoughts. So repeat after me. Come on, everyone. There is no one better to be than myself. There is no one better to be than myself. Today is going to be an amazing day. Today is going to be an amazing day. My feelings matter. My feelings matter. I get better every single day. I get better every single day. So yeah, she she might uh, check out that affirmation song by Snoop. And well, uh, it's really good because all those things are correct. And the thing, you know, I'm not all into Snoop, but the thing I like about that is that if you don't verbalize it and you're a one, two, or a six, then it will be gone by next week. Well, speaking of twos, got a question here from Dell on the chat. As a two, uh, my whole life doing for others. I feel like I'm doing those things because I want something back from them, whether it's attention, connection, etc. And I don't like that. What can I do to not do that? Ick. <laughs> well, you know, I have some real wisdom for that because I do that too. So perhaps you've never heard me talk about this um, thing that I've been doing for, I don't know, maybe 20 years now, maybe 25 When I move towards someone to do something for them, I ask myself, why am I moving toward this other person? That's the first question. Second question, because I'm always moving towards somebody to be helpful. What, if anything, do I expect in return? Which leads me to the third question, which is, does the other person even want my help? I work with those three Uh, Who knows how many times a day? And it has turned into the overall overarching question that I try to live under, which is what is mine to do? And interestingly enough, at my tender age of 72, I think there have been seasons when I thought each of the three questions was the most important one. And right now, I think, that the third question is the most important one. And you are unaware, Joel, and unintentionally helping me with that. 
because I spend a lot of time helping other people when they don't want my help. They don't need it, and they don't want it. And I've had to get to a place where when somebody, when I offer help and somebody doesn't want it, I have to get to a place where that doesn't hurt my feelings, but where I'm recognizing, you know, that hidden thing we have in twos, where if I help you, you'll help me. Other people, other numbers know there's a hidden expectation in all of that. And you help me all the time, so that doesn't fit you and me as well as it does us with strangers. And, yeah, I, I think that's part of it. And here, I think this is the second piece. I feel very sad about this, actually. We're not good at all when it comes to receiving. And that's a control thing, sadly. Um, I feel like I'm in control when I'm giving. And I feel vulnerable when I'm receiving. And the more I age, the more I'm aware that I'm going to be doing less helping and more receiving the older I get. And um, I've got some work to do. I have an Enneagram question that you can say that I think is it's pretty personal, I think. And if you're like, I don't want to talk about that right now or ever, or you're, or you're wrong, Joel, all the things. <laughs> Thank you for giving me all my options. Yeah. I notice in you and I, I can, I'll give two examples, one from today and one from your teaching. Do two, do two things, helping others when not asked all that, when they're try, avoiding their own feelings and emotions about something. Yep. So you came in today and you were very upfront about it. Like, I got a lot going on. How did you do? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. And then you tried to do things for me that you don't need to do. Right. That I don't want you to do yeah. and so on. And then to use an example of your from your teaching, you know, the going across to the hotel after knocking on the door of your birth mom. Yeah. And trying to help the, the valet. Yeah. That doing isn't uh, included in here. In what they said, you know, doing to get something back, right, doing right. it's a doing out of avoidance. Yeah, that's that's golden, Joel. And I'm so glad you said it. And that will now be the third of my four questions. The fourth of my five questions now, I guess. Because <laughs> I already had three plus what is mine to do. So that'll be number four. That will be number four. And I'll tell you a little bit about why that's such a gift for me right now. I um, am teaching an Enneagram and Family Systems cohort with Dr. Dr. Andy Stoker, and he is a Family Systems scholar. And anybody who's adopted has challenges that come just because you're adopted with doing Family Systems work. Our son, BJ, and his husband are adopting out of the foster system. And my adoption stuff is everywhere around me. And I'm tired of it. I'm just tired of it. I don't... I want the parents I had. I don't want the parents that didn't want me. I'm just tired of all of it. And yet, I have a word and a gift to speak in to the adoption and fostering community 
that I I kind of think is mine to do based on my own life experience and our family. And it's, and this is very, you're right, it's very personal, but that's really triggering me right now. And I'm just trying to avoid feelings wherever I can in some moments, in some spaces, at some times. And for me to teach for three days right now, there's no possible way for me not to have a space in there where I something has brought up a feeling that I don't want to have. What do the rest of us do when we're in that situation, when we recognize that that's happening with it too? Yeah. Like what's the... It could either be do nothing or let them do something for you. And I think you would have to have some awareness of all of that on top of what's happening today is my arthritis is giving me trouble. So it's kind for me to offer to go, you know, undo all the stuff and go over there and get your keyboard. And so a kind thing is to say, I don't need you to do that. And yet as your mom, when you're trying to get stuff done, it feels like it's mine to be responsible. So then the little thing I said to myself was he's an adult and he's got this handled and he's trying to care for you. So you need to sit here and let him instead of he's a little shit who thinks he can do everything by himself and he's not going to accept help today. Two, th- two things can be true. That's exactly right. Except uh, you're a big shit now. <laughs> a little shit. Uh, we got a question here from Lori. My name is Lori and I am from North Carolina. It took me a long time to arrive at my Enneagram number and I think that's probably because I'm a social eight. I often look like a two, but I don't have the motivations of a two. Can you help me understand the healing path for a female eight, particularly one who was raised in the South and in the church? I know that the world often experiences me as too much and my social subtype seems to make me focus on others' wants and needs over my own. In Beatrice Chestnut's The Complete Enneagram, there's a story from a social eight named Annie that describes me almost to a T. I struggle to make sense of how differently male eights are viewed and perceived versus female eights. Thank you. Again, somebody's done a lot of work. I was going to start with, uh, well, uh, I don't know how old you are, but if you're an eight in the South and in the church, then you have to behave like a two until you learn not to. And and it's not that you're motivated like a two, which she was right on. It's that you see the path that you need. To, it's almost like um, bowling with the, uh, what's that? I haven't bowled in a long time. With the bumpers up? Or not. And you have to put the bumpers up in order to not lose your turn and in order to keep the ball going where it's headed. It's very difficult. It I don't know how old you are, but in my age group, it's very difficult to be an eight in the South and in the church. And honestly, we just had a conversation this morning, and I'm not sure it's getting easier for female eights in the church. I don't, I don't really think it is, especially... Especially, listen to me, especially in the South. I just think you, I'm so sorry. That's got to be a whipping. And good for you for figuring out that you're an eight and a social eight. Now, here's what you do. Here's what you try. I don't know if it's going to work, but here's what you try. 
you take one out of every three or four things that you're inclined to do or say so that you're not being experienced as too much. One of the things that I think distinguishes male eights from female eights, and I've worked on this for a long time because I think it's unjust, is that I think in our, here's my answer. Today and moving forward, I'm very thankful for this conversation because it just came to me. I think by nature, females are more nurturing than males. I think female eights are more comfortable when they move to two in security than male eights are. And I think what we're talking about is a new way of looking at that, which would be, I don't think males see where nurturing is required as much as females do, and I think it's intuitive. So I I think it's about nurturing. I don't think it's about self-focus or other-focused. I think it's what you see. Uh, we got a question from Ann. Hi, my name is Ann. I have a question. I am a two 100%. My whole life, my only dream that I can ever remember was being a mom and a grandma and having kids around all the time and family dinners and vacations together. I have two daughters and six grandkids. My oldest daughter, who always had issues and a personality disorder, I believe, would not adhere to any boundaries her entire life. Um, We went to counseling her whole life. Every time I'd set up a boundary, she would do something drastic. She took my grandkids away four times, and this final time, it's been seven years. We haven't gotten to communicate with them, nor has her sister or anybody in our family for seven years. Although we see them at every function because we live in a small town and they go to the same school and the kids aren't allowed to look at us. I have tried to deal with this for seven years and I just can't get my heart on board. Any ideas for a two to help move past this? Thank you. I'm so sorry. That must be really, really hard. I think sometimes for twos emotionally, because we don't know what our feelings are, we work on the wrong thing. Or we try to handle the wrong thing. Or we try to take ownership of the wrong thing. And um, the feeling pillow is right here by us, which we use an awful lot of the time. And I am aware that I think twos, I thought it was just me because of my adoption and other things that have happened in my life. But I think for twos, feeling abandoned is a real thing. I think the world might not describe it as being abandoned, but we don't work on it as abandonment. We work on it as some of the other things that are around sad. Guilty, despair, depressed, lonely, bored. But right in there with it is abandonment. And right outside of abandonment is ignored and victimized. And what I would say to you is I think that you have to start wrapping your head and your heart around the fact that your daughter has abandoned you and she has decided to insist that her children 
do the same or at least pretend to do the same. And I think you're, I, I think this is the most important part of the whole thing. I'm just so sorry. That would be so incredibly hard for me. But sometimes it's not about you. And sometimes the work, all of it, is on the other person's side of the fence. And I don't know if that makes it any easier, but this isn't about you. And it would be good if you could work with feelings of being abandoned. You know, my guess is one of your feelings would be I'm being punished. One of your feelings would be I'm being denied. Try working with abandonment and accept the total lack of control that you have because all the work is on the other side of the fence and you can't do it. You can't do it. And don't let the situation keep you from being you. So be you in this small town where y'all run into each other all the time. Just continue to be you. And maybe, maybe someday, some work will be done on the other side of the fence. And I think you're right. I, I think there's no doubt that there's a personally personal disorder of personality disorder of some kind. And... You can't fix that either. Tough question. That was a tough situation. Can you talk to, is there a way for nines to intentionally access the three space to get things done and prioritize? Sort of. (laughs) One of the things, the way I talk about that when I'm teaching is this. If you learn when you're stressed to choose to go to the healthy side of three instead of the unhealthy side. Just nine, nine, three security move. Yeah, I'm sorry. Tell me the number. We're nine going to three. We're nine who wants to go to three. Nine. Yeah. The question is like how to. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. I'm sorry. Sorry. I was thinking about that last question. Yeah. Um, when you're a nine and you want more three then what you have to do is when life is great and things are lined up well and you know you're behaving in three, then you kind of have to take a breath and say, what is it about this that's different than just me in in average nine space? And you may even want to journal about it. I know nines hate to journal, so don't. I'm not putting some big burden on you. But just be, be thoughtful after you've been in good, secure space about how you were and who you were. And just start to be aware of, I have more self-confidence in that space. I have more determination in that space. Because what I'm teaching everybody is either move that you make, if you can go to the healthy side, you can bring back with you behavior that serves you well there. And it can become part of your everyday way of being in the world. But you can't do that unless you've experienced, and you're kind of going to pack it up and bring it back with you. All right, we got a question here from Erica, and then we got time, I think, for about one other question. And, you know, then we just, we're going to have time, and we have, and then we'll do it again. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Erica Shoup, and I have a question about twins and the Enneagram. We have identical twin girls who are 12, and we believe they are two and a nine and I'm wondering how the dynamics of being a twin 
plays into their Enneagram type. We've listened to almost all of your podcasts, and I haven't come across anything about twins yet and how that can affect or change things, I suppose, mostly in the relationship between themselves, but I suppose with other people as well. Thank you so much for your insights. That's such a good question. Thank you. Uh, We actually have um, several sets of twins around us, so I think I can, uh, after a lot of years of thinking about twins and, and encountering people on the road, mostly who are twins, First, let me say that I'm glad you were able to discern that you think they're a two and a nine because you could have easily discerned that they were both twos or both nines because those two numbers tend to look alike. And um, I would guess I've taught 200 sets of twins over the years somewhere, and it's rare that they're the same number, maybe twice. Maybe only once. It seems like there might be twice. Having said that, the problem with identical twins, a problem. It's lovely and everybody's all taken with it and all that. But people have to be taught by them that they look the same and they're not the same. For example, twos really want to be with other people And nines want to be on the edge of being with other people, except when they feel like they trust them and then they'll kind of hop in. And when they're identical, people then are critical of the one who's not doing the thing that they want them to do at that moment. It could either be the two or the nine. And they're going to have to watch for that. And they're going to have to start using the language. We look alike. We often act alike. And we are very different from one another. And then people will generally ask what the difference is. And they can begin to educate themselves as they explain it to other people and educate other people about how they're different. And then they can actually capitalize on both. Because those numbers are so much alike, twos and nines, I don't think it will ever be a problem in their relationship with each other. But if they were very an aggressive and a withdrawing number, I think it could be something that would have to be addressed. Suzanne, do you have a favorite book by Thomas Merton? Yep. Uh, I have a favorite book about Thomas Merton. The favorite book about Thomas Merton is Follow the Ecstasy. Uh, that's it. Hmm. All right, Such no, a good book. What is your favorite writing by Thomas Merton? The one right next to it. Uh, what do we got here? Thomas Merton Reader. The Reader. And here's why. Thomas Merton is so deep that one can read about Thomas Merton to understand his life, which is what Follow the Ecstasy is. But to read Thomas Merton is, it's like every sentence is so deep. I don't have it here, I don't think. But I've got it at home. There's a whole series of these pocket books, and it's the pocket yes, Thomas Merton book. So it's just it's, that's great. It's they, great. They pulled the gold because there's so much, and yep. it's so yep. yeah. The reader does that some too, and the the third favorite is conjectures of a guilty bystander, and I I think that's because I grew up in the '60s, and I think that's because. Uh, 
that was a thing. Um, I held it up too quickly last time. I relate to conjectures of a guilty bystander in many ways as a baby boomer. I would say that. There we go. A six in our Enneagram Journey class wanted me to ask what your phrase means, doubt shuts people out. When you are in relationship with people. Real quick, that's from Elizabeth, not from me. Sorry, now go on. When you're in relationship with people and you have reason to trust them and you doubt them, then you're shutting them out. You're keeping them out. Your doubt is so prevalent that it can become habitual rather than intentional if you're not careful. And doubting somebody means that you don't trust them. And not trusting somebody means that there are things that, everybody knows that, there are things you're not going to tell. I'm not saying the question silly. I'm saying when you don't trust somebody. Mm-hmm. We all know that the result of that is you tell them some things but not other things. You're leery of the things they tell you. you. It's a different energy that's exchanged than when you do. And because sixes doubt themselves and other people, I'm not sure they understand the difference in the energy. And I don't think they understand what people read and what's happening. I think they think they're just in control of what's said. All right, final question, and then we got to wrap it up until next time. Uh, it's from Tracy. We touched on this a little bit. I know it's, it's a good question. I know it's a hard question for you to answer. Hi, as a two, how do I learn how to express express and articulate my needs or feelings my mind is blank whenever i'm asked i actually think i have an answer for that um i've struggled with that for a very very long time i think that i'm learning the answer from david white so if you haven't heard me then that's a surprise talk about david white and his book consolations and his writing on maturity But he says that maturity is holding the present, the past, and the future all at the same time. And that had not occurred to me. I've thought about balance in those three, but not learning to hold all three at the same time. As a two, I'm learning from the past. I'm learning by journaling what I wish I had said. What would have really been the truth if I'd been able to get to it and say it? What I wish somebody else knew about me. The gold for the answer to the question is in the past. And then you got to be able to bring that forward. I can't see it anywhere else. I can't see it in the, if only I had shared it, then this would have happened in the future. That doesn't work for me. I can't find it in the present, but I'm learning to do better in the present because I have found it by looking back. Thank you. Thank you for answering all the questions. That's a good day. Yeah. Thank you, everyone who, again, remembering that this is a podcast, everyone who has sent in questions on Instagram, through the website, everyone who is here on the chat, watching live on the table. Thank you for all the great questions you asked and your contribution and the chat amongst the people it was just great to read also oh, yeah. sorry sorry you missed out on that 
Uh, well, I could, you know, I can't do both anyway, so yeah. it's okay. But I'm glad it was great. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to, yes, uh, real quick, Candice, the replay will be available, I don't know, in a matter of moments. I think it just stays up. Uh, you might have to refresh your feed or something. But uh, signing off, anything you want to, salutation you want to give? My dad was born in 1903. And he was a doctor, and uh, he started practicing medicine when it was necessary at times after World War II for people to barter for medical care, and he ended up bartering always, and he was frugal because he was a one on the Enneagram. My mom was a five. And when I was growing up, my dad, by that time, they had paid cash for the home they lived in, they had paid cash for every car they ever bought and everything they ever had, except vacations. And my dad said sometimes they needed a vacation and they couldn't pay cash, and he went and into debt, you know, put it on a card or whatever. And I grew up then with this teaching of don't borrow money, unless it's for a vacation. Don't pay interest unless it's for a vacation. And we're approaching summer, and we've been mostly repressed in our going and doing for almost five years. And I'm sure you're going to get emails where I told people to borrow money. I'm telling you a story about my dad. And I'm telling you that I think he was right. And I think vacations are so important, small or long, fancy or not, that everybody should try to have one. That's what I got. Excellent. You can you can either listen to Dave Ramsey or you can listen to Suzanne. And <laughs> you decide how you want to spend I would your suggest that you, I don't know. You can listen to both when he tells me. Everything in moderation, including moderation. And, That's good. That's a good and, line. You know, it's like sometimes, you know, some people need to put a little bit less on the card and other people need to put a little bit on yeah. the card. And Yeah, I just think it's time. We need to get away and play. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and thank you guys. And uh, see you again soon. And thanks, everybody. Set up another time to do this on the table uh, as soon as possible.